Let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that it would bear great fruit in our life. Uh, We pray uh, that your church would be built up as we read your word. Uh, We pray that you would help us to see the horrors of our sin and to find uh, so much life in your word today. God, I pray uh, that you would just be glorified by our time. I pray that you would just show us how inexhaustible and wonderful your grace is for sinners like us. Oh God, please be glorified by our time and help us to see the wonderful promises that you have made for us. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Imagine uh, going on a first date or a job interview, if that's more your speed. Uh, you, when you do that kind of thing, you're, you're doing everything in your power to put your best foot forward, right? You're trying to impress. You're trying to highlight all of your best qualities. You're trying to downplay all the qualities that are a little less uh, favorable. Uh, But imagine if you went on a first date and it was just a complete disaster, or you like went on a job interview and you like stumble over your words and you realize that you like forgot to button your shirt and and your hair's all messed up. And and when they ask you your greatest weakness, you actually tell them your greatest weakness. And you're just like, oh man, that's horrible. I'm never going to get that job. I'm never going to get the second date. Uh, And then imagine the phone rings a couple days later and you get the second date. You get the job interview, not because of anything that you've done, but actually seeing how messy you are, that person chose to involve themselves in your life. Some people attempt to approach church like a first date, and we act like we got to like button our shirt up, we've got to make sure our hair's perfect, we've got to make sure we put on our perfect church face and get everything right, and then maybe God will accept us. Maybe the church folk will uh, be fooled. Maybe people will think we are the real deal. But friends, God is not fooled. He sees us with perfect clarity. He sees us more clearly than we see ourselves. He sees all of your junk. He sees all of your shortcomings. He sees all of your brokenness. He sees all of your sin. He sees it with perfect clarity, and he loves you with an inexhaustible grace. A God who is not scared off by your messiness, but a God who in your brokenness is actually approaching you with a grace that is inexhaustible. And the good news is not just that God ignores our sin, but that he actually loves us so much that he wants to deal with it. That's the 
best news in the whole world. He wants to get intimately involved with you to heal you. That's good news, and that's what we'll see today in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous speech. If I were to give a title of the Sermon on the Mount, I would call it the true people of the true king. In other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, which, which most people believe is the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount, this is where Jesus lays out his big idea ends his introduction before he gets into the meat of the sermon. And he, he gives his main point right here, which I think we could summarize by saying, the true disciple obeys with strength from God. So if you don't take anything else home today, that's what I want you to hear. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. And we'll see that point unfold in two main points. Number one, the scripture's climax. Number two, the Savior's commands. The Scripture's climax and the Savior's commands. So first, the Scripture's climax in verses 17 and 18. Jesus begins this introductory statement by showing that all of Scripture points to him. He is the point of the Bible. So read uh, verse 17 with me. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now that phrase, the law or the prophets, the law and the prophets, that was a shorthand phrase in Jesus' day to refer to all of uh, the Hebrew Bible, to refer to all of our Old Testament, all of the scripture that they had at that point. Uh, you could summarize that by saying the law and the prophets. That's what we call the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying here that he's coming not to abolish the law and the prophets, not to throw out the Old Testament, not to void all of the scriptures with new and better scriptures, but rather he comes to fulfill them. He continues, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Now, usually when we think about fulfilling scripture, we think about the fulfillment of prophecy. We think about a prediction that was made and is then fulfilled. And there's actually so much more at play in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is actually a main theme in Matthew's gospel. So the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters within a larger book, a biography of Jesus' life, the gospel according to Matthew. And one of the primary themes in Matthew is this word, fulfillment, how Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And what Matthew shows over and over again is that Christ has not just come to make all of the predictions come true, but Christ has actually come to complete the story of Scripture. All of the heroes of the Bible were just a shadow of Christ. All of the hopes of Scripture find their fulfillment in Christ, their actualization in Christ. So what God's people have been hoping for for centuries, Christ came and he said, I'm here to fulfill all of your hopes, to make your wildest dreams come true. And Christ has come to fulfill all of the promises of Scripture. So every promise that God made, he's keeping by sending 
his son. Christ did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Let me give you just some examples of how this theme of fulfillment comes up throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew, Matthew starts his gospel in chapter 1 with Jesus' family tree. You know, that's a good place to start a biography about someone, their family tree. And the point of that family tree, one of the points is that to illustrate that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham, the forefather of the Jewish people. Jesus is the son, the heir of all of the promises to Abraham. But there's an escalation that happens here. Jesus shows that the, the promises and the hopes of the Old Testament were bigger than we ever could have imagined. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So God made promises to Abraham God made promises to Abraham that his people, the Israelites, would be God's people forever. And Jesus is showing that there's an escalation here. Jesus is showing that there's more at play, that there's more at view, that the story's bigger than you ever could have imagined. Because through the son of Abraham, it's not just the Jewish people that will be blessed, but people from east and west, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne of God and sing his praises forever because of Jesus. So God's promises to Abraham aren't just being fulfilled at the bare minimum, they're being expanded and escalated. Jesus is showing us how big God's plan has always been. Another example in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's gospel starts with the Christmas story. And in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, there's a big conflict between Herod, who was a Roman governor, a ruler in the Roman Empire over all of Israel. And when Herod hears word that someone has come who is born as king of the Jewish people, Herod gets anxious and does everything that he can to try to kill this Jesus, this king who's a threat to his throne. And so Jesus' parents take the newborn child, they flee away to Egypt. Once Herod dies and they get word of that, they come back to Egypt. And there's an interesting statement at the end of Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And he, that's Jesus' father Joseph, he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill... What, was, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that scripture. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, fun fact for you, that scripture that's being quoted is Hosea 11.1 1, and from the Old Testament. And Hosea 11.1 1 has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus being called out of Egypt. It's not a prediction about the future of what Jesus would do. It's actually a statement about the past, about what God had already done in bringing Israel out of Egypt in the story of the Exodus, when God parted the Red Seas and Moses led the Israelites to freedom. And so what on earth is Matthew doing quoting here Hosea 11.1 1, and saying that Jesus fulfills this story about Israel? It's not a prediction. Well, what he's doing there, he's not making a mistake. He's not making an error. What he's doing is he's showing that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus has come to fulfill Israel, to show Israel 
what true Israel looks like. He's come to bring about an even more spectacular deliverance than God brought about at the Red Sea. All of the Old Testament anticipates Christ. Christ is not merely the end of the story. He is its climax. He is the point. He's not merely the most exciting part of the Bible. He's the foundation of the Bible. He's the climax of the Bible. He's the point of the Bible. You could imagine that everything else in Scripture is like a bowl, and Christ is the scoop of ice cream, the sweet, sweet ice cream. Without the ice cream, you just have a bowl. Christ is the point. And that's not to say that you can just throw out the rest of Scripture now that we have Christ, because if you try to eat ice cream without a bowl, it's going to make a big old mess. And if you try to understand who Jesus is without the rest of Scripture, you're going to make a big old mess too, because we can't understand who he is apart from all of Scripture. He's not merely the most exciting part of the Bible. He is the climax of the Scriptures. And so Jesus makes application from this in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is talking about the end of this era, when heaven and earth pass away, when all is accomplished, when God has completed his plan. And when that happens... And everything that we know and love and live for, when all of it passes away, the Bible will stand. The prophet Isaiah wrote that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever, forever. And so all of it is necessary. There's not an iota, not a dot that will pass away from the law until all of it is accomplished. There's not the teeny tiniest little letter that you could throw out of the Bible. It's all necessary. Even the little dot on top of an eye, you don't even dare take that away. You need it. We need all of God's word, which finds its climax in Christ. So friends, don't throw out the Old Testament. A lot of Christian teachers will tell you that the Bible really doesn't matter. You just have to get to Jesus. Friends, ice cream without a bowl, it's going to make a big mess. We need all of the scriptures. Let me give you one more example of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 2 quotes from another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, God tells this stunning story about how God's people had sinned in the Israelites. They had sinned, and as a result, they were sent away from the promised land. That's what God always said would happen. But God makes a promise through the prophet Jeremiah to say that even though I've sent you away, I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be even bigger, and it's going to be even better, and it's going to be even more spectacular than it ever was before. And so hear these words from the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to hear why God sends his people away and what promises he makes as he draws his people back to the promised land. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this, so that all of, all of that so far is how Israel broke the commandment. They broke their covenant. They broke their relationship with God because of their sin. As a result, they were sent away. But then, verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after those days of exile, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, there's some spectacular promises there. And keep in mind who God is making those promises to. He's making those promises to people that had already messed everything up. And so maybe you're in here today, and that story about the first date from the beginning, that sounds like you. You realize how broken and messed up and sinful you are. Well, these are promises that God gives to people like you, to broken people like me. These are promises for you, friends. God makes a promise there in verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Christ has come not to abolish that promise, but to fulfill that promise. Christ has come to forgive us of our sins. Because unlike Israel, who broke their promises with God and rebelled against him, and as a result were sent away, Christ always obeyed God. He always loved God. He always walked in the path of God. He always loved God and loved others. And Christ, as a great reward for all of his obedience, Christ was slain. Christ was crushed, not for his crimes, but for our crimes. He didn't have any crimes to be punished for. And when Jesus died on the cross, there was something spectacular happening behind the scenes because all of the wrath that we have rightly earned for our sin was poured out on Christ. And the old you, controlled by sin, enslaved by sin, died with Christ. Christ died to forgive your iniquity, to remember it no more. Christ does not forgive our sin by ignoring it. Christ forgives our sin by dealing with it, by paying for it. God makes a promise to forgive, and that's fulfilled in Christ. But there's another promise in this passage from Jeremiah 31 that Christ fulfills. There's all of these promises about giving his people a new heart, or about putting his law within them and writing it on their hearts. Christ is promising to give his people a new heart, and that promise, too, is fulfilled in Christ. So the reason that we have so much sin and brokenness and shortcoming in our life is not just because we make bad choices, but because we're bad people. It's not just because we live in a world of brokenness, but because we're broken people with broken, sin-stained, sick hearts. That's why we do the wrong thing, because we're not the right kind of people. And so God says, God sees us in our brokenness, 
and he makes a plan to fix us. He makes a plan to give us a new heart. You know, trying to change without Christ is like mowing over weeds. They're going to grow back. They're going to grow back. Trying to change without Christ is like really like cleaning out a pipe that's connected to a sewage pump. Like more nastiness is going to flow through it. So Christ gets to the root of the, of the thing. And he addresses our sinful hearts. God does not just ignore your sin. He wants to deal with it. He sees all of our brokenness that causes us so much pain. And he says, no, I love you too much to let you do that to yourself. I'm not going to let you do that. I love you. And so just notice how much bigger this makes God's grace, that he doesn't just ignore our sin or he doesn't just forgive our sin and be like, okay, go on, live your life. He says, I'm going to fix you. He sees you in all of your brokenness, friends, the worst things that you could ever imagine. And he says, I want that. I love you too much to let you go in that brokenness. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make things right. I'm going to give you a new heart because I love you. God doesn't just forgive us and then tell us, like, okay, now fix yourself. He changes us from the inside out. Do you see that? That's the point of Christianity, friends. God is the one who saves his people from sin. Not just by forgiving our sin, but actually dealing with it in our life. He transforms us so that we love the right things. He gives us a new heart that isn't bent towards sin, but a new heart that loves the right things. Because when we love the right things, we're able to do the right things. He changes us. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. So God doesn't just give us these commands and be like, all right, shape up, guys. Like, you know the standard now. You know the rules. Like, punishment's coming if you don't, like, get your act together. No, that's not how God is. He calls us to obey, and then he gives us the strength to obey him. Christ is the climax of Scripture. Christ is the climax of Scripture. He fulfills all of these promises from Jeremiah 31. All of the promises to Abraham and David and Moses are fulfilled in Christ. All of the Bible is telling a story about Christ. And friends, all of the universe is telling that same story. We like to think that we're living in the Truman Show and that all of this is really about us, that we're the main character. And the fact of the matter is we're not the point of the story. We're not the center of the universe. Christ is. And so, friends, your life will never make sense until Christ is at the center of your life because that's what all the universe was oriented around. It doesn't make sense for anything else to be at the center of Christ. So is your story centered on Christ? Or are you still trying to make yourself the main character? Are you living for God's glory to, to see that promise for Abraham fulfilled, people from every nation worshiping the risen Christ? Or are you 
stuck in your sin, loving the wrong things, unwilling to come to Christ in your brokenness and receive a new heart. And friends, as you share your faith, if you're a Christian and you go out and share your faith, part of what we do is we help people find their place in that story. We say, you know, do you feel the brokenness inside of you? God has a plan to deal with it. Do you see the brokenness around you? God has a plan to deal with it. God has a plan to address it and show them this grand story of all of Scripture that Christ has come not to abolish but to fulfill. He is the Scripture's climax. And number two, we see the Savior's commands. Christ, this gloriously gracious, loving Christ, gives His people commands and He gives His people strength to obey those commands. So look at verse 19. Jesus says, Therefore, so because none of the Old Testament will pass away, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is a real turning point in the Sermon on the Mount. Because when Jesus says these commands, he's talking about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the remainder of this grand speech where he's going to lay out as the true king the laws of his kingdom. He's going to lay out, he's going to explain these commands. And these commands cannot be relaxed. If you relax one of the least of these commandments, if you teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so Christians, it's not okay to just sit and be content with your sin or just deal with it like accept it as a fact. No, Christ died to pay for your sins. Christ wants to get involved to help you address your sin. You don't have to be stuck in that anymore, friends. So friends, it's just not okay to be okay with sin. If you're a Christian and you've been harboring some secret sin in your life, don't leave here today without confessing it to someone. James chapter 5 promises, confess your sins and you will be healed. It's a promise. So don't go here today without confessing your sin to me or the person who brought you or someone around you. We'll help you by God's grace. So Christ is the king, and he's laying out the laws of his kingdom. And then in verse 20, he explains why he's laying out the laws of his kingdom. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When we hear the word scribe, we usually think about like a secretary, somebody that's like writing down everything that's said. But that word meant something a lot different in Jesus' day. The scribes were actually the people who studied the law and the prophets, who studied our Old Testament and knew it through and through. Every religious group would have scribes that were a part of their, uh, their group. And so the scribes are the people that know the scriptures better than anybody else. They're the scholars. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, the people who knew the Bible better than anybody else, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. 
So when Alexander the Great was building the Greek Empire and he took over Israel, there was a, a cultural force called Hellenization, where, where Alexander was imposing Greek culture on everything. And the Pharisees said, no, 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 we can't live like that. We can't live like those crazy Greek people do. Like We have to live according to God's ways. That's a good impulse. Not live like the world, live like God. But the way that it was carried out is that the Pharisees focused often on external conformity at the expense of a heart that loved God. So they did the right things on the outside, but they didn't love the right things on the inside. And so as a result, they didn't obey the law, really. They looked good, but they didn't love well. So according to verse 20, the only way into the kingdom of heaven is to be more righteous than the people who knew the Bible better than anybody else, and to be more righteous than the people who obeyed all of the rules better than anybody else. How could you ever do that? Because the Pharisees only kept the law on the outside. Here, Jesus' words again from Matthew chapter 15, he addresses the Pharisees. He says, hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Remember two weeks ago when we read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Christianity is not about keeping the rules because keeping the rules could never be enough. Jesus is not just after external conformity. He's after an internal change. He doesn't just want people who do the right things. He's looking for people who love the right things. He's not looking for people who follow the rules. He's looking for people who will follow him. And remember Jeremiah chapter 31 and those promises from Christ. So Christ is calling you to be pure in heart, and in Jeremiah 31, he has promised to give you a pure heart. He loves you too much to allow you to sit in your sin. He's going to deal with it. Christ makes us fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. So maybe some of you have just been striving and struggling this week to be better or to fix your marriage or to be a better person. You will never be able to change without a new heart from Christ. Christ makes people fit to enter the kingdom. So the true disciple obeys with strength from God. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. We cannot decrease this call. A lot of people say the only way to love people today is to be tolerant. But, but friends, tolerance actually isn't loving because sin is filthy and it's dangerous and it's going to kill you. And God loves you too much to allow you to sit in it. So is this salvation by works? No, of course not. Because God is the one who empowers us to obey. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. He is like gas in the car. God is the one that enables you to go. Without his help, we are dead. But with his help, we can really, actually, finally 
change. Do you see how this is good news? Like, imagine, just, just entertain the notion. If you think, like, you don't have any sin in your life, just entertain for a minute that there's some brokenness in your life, some sin in your life that really, like, just drags you down. It's this burden on your back weighing you down. And imagine that, that God says, like, I see how messed up this whole situation is. And it's not okay because it's hurting you. But I love you anyway with an inexhaustible grace. Like, let's, let's do that together. God is not just like sitting on a throne and being like, dude, fix yourself, messed up, loser. God is putting his arm around you. And he's saying, I love you so much. We're going to get through this together. We're going to get through this together. That's how wonderfully gracious God is. His grace is inexhaustible, friends. You will never get to the end of it. It's not like three strikes and you're out. It's not even like 10,000 strikes and you're out. If it was 10,000 strikes, I'd already be out. But it's better than that. It's inexhaustible. God is in it for the long haul with you to fix you, to change you, to transform you. He loves you, friends. He loves you. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. So what does it actually look like to change? What does it actually look like to change? Are you tired of knowing all the right things, but never able to do the right things? God has a plan for you, friends. You don't have to leave here today without hope. Let me give you five steps to actually change. With all of this in mind, knowing that Christ has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, knowing that Christ has come to forgive your iniquity and remember it no more, knowing that Christ has come to give you a new heart, how do we actually change? Step one, see yourself. Don't be a self-righteous Pharisee. You know, you think you're good and fine because you're better than the people around you. No. No, don't allow yourself to believe that. Just look in the mirror and see how broken and sinful we all are. Maybe you could spend this afternoon reading the Sermon on the Mount and letting Jesus' uh, commands show you how short we all fall. See yourself. Number two, repent. Because your heart is broken and sinful. Repentance is acknowledging your sin, confessing it to God, and turning away from it, turning from sin towards God, and asking him for his help, because trying to change without Christ is like trying to grow a flower on your head. It's not going to happen no matter how hard you try. It's impossible. So turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Come to him and be saved. See yourself. Repent. Number three, believe God's gospel. Our only hope is that Christ died for us, and rose again. And so when Christ died for us, our old self, controlled by sin, our old self that loved sin, was nailed to the cross with him. The old you is dead. You're not a slave to sin anymore if you're a Christian. And when Christ rose from the dead, a new you rose up with him. That's why Christ gave his life. That's why Christ rose Again, to give you a new heart. 
Your new heart is alive because Jesus is alive. We're about to celebrate Easter. The reason the empty tomb is such good news is because the king is risen and we are risen up with him. We're risen up with him. So believe God's gospel. And this is not a one-time thing. Like, okay, you believe the gospel to begin your Christian life and the rest of it you're like on your own. No, no, we need God's grace every day. You don't graduate from the gospel. You need God's grace every single day, which leads to number four. Number one, see yourself. Number two, repent. Number three, believe God's gospel. Number four, pray for strength. The battle against sin is not a battle that you can win on your own. You need to pray for strength. And sometimes we like to think about prayer like calling in for backup. Like, you know, like, okay, I've got, I've got this situation covered today. Like, I think I can take care of that sin on my own. But like, man, this one, like, that's a, that's a monster. I'm going to need some help with that. Like, I'll pray about that one. Uh, no, no, no. God is not backup. God is like you are like dead and wounded on the field. And he like comes and scoops you up and gets you away from enemy lines. He is not backup. Calling for backup is a bad illustration. It's a bad way to think about it. Because God is not your backup. He's plan A. He's your only hope to win the battle. So remember God's promises to give you a new heart. And then pray, asking God to keep those promises. And number five, discipline yourself for godliness. If you are a Christian, know that God has called you to pursue righteousness. But this disciplined pursuit is a completely dependent discipline. God strengthens us, and we do the work. We're completely dependent on Him. God gasses up the car. We get in and drive. God strengthens us. We plow the field. God gives the growth of the harvest. Only God can do it. I'm going to ask the the music team to come back up now as we wrap up. Friends, God wants to be involved in all of your sin. He sees how broken and messed up you are more clearly than you do. And he says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to help you. I will fix you. His grace is in exhaustible. So if you're not a Christian today, come to him and be saved. This is not a God who is naive. This is a God who sees how messed up we all are and says, I love you and I know how hard it's going to be. I gave my son to pay for it, but I love you. And if you are a Christian, especially, and you, you feel like there's a secret sin in your life or you just feel like you want to grow in godliness generally, we want to help you. We do that primarily through one-on-one discipleship, where two people meet together to do what Jesus said, to teach Jesus' commands, to train you to make disciples. And so if you want to grow as a follower of Christ, get involved in one-on-one discipleship. We, the way to get started is to fill out a self-assessment, to give uh, your disciple maker a baseline. You fill that out at pillardc.com grow. And then we'll pair you up with a more mature Christian who will be able to help you fight sin, who will be able to help you strive for godliness, who will equip you and train you to make disciples. PillarDC.com slash grow. Let people in who will help you. 
Oh, friends, we worship a God who is infinitely gracious, infinitely gracious. He has kindness that will never end. He has mercy that will never expire. It is far greater than all of your sins. And he himself is the only one who has ever been more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. He's inviting us all to come to him and be saved, whether for the first time or again in the pursuit of him. He's calling you to follow him, to fall back on his grace and find life in him forever. The true disciple obeys with strength from God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you that your grace is so beautifully wonderful and inexhaustible. Oh God, I pray that you would transform our hearts so that we are able to love you in spirit and in truth, so that we are able to follow you to the ends of the earth. Oh God, I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would that you would just show us how much you love us, that you see us with perfect clarity. You love us with unending mercy. That you're not scared off by our sin, but that our sin draws out your mercy. Oh God, you are so kind. Just help us to know your kindness today. It's for your name we pray. Amen.